talk about Detour. Now, if I were smart, I would pick movies that are either popular or famous or something to do with current movies. I'd pick something like Mortal Kombat that's about to come out or talk about all the movies that are going to be at the Oscars like Minari or Another Round or one of those movies. And I did actually try to watch Another Round for today's video, but I couldn't find it. Not really sure. Well, actually, that's not true. I could find it. It was on Hulu, but I couldn't log into Hulu for some reason. So instead, I watched Detour, which... <sighs> Detour reminds me of why I love movies so much. When I watch James Cameron movies specifically, though, with a lot of directors of the 80s, if I'm being completely honest, I think the 80s is kind of a trash era for cinema, if we're being completely honest. And here is my cat. And when I watch movies from the 80s, it's just kind of depressing. It makes me think, why do I love movies? Do I actually love movies? Do I like watching movies? Or do I kind of hate it? Do I hate movies? And movies like Detour remind me, no, I don't hate movies. I just hate bad movies. And it was just, the 80s for some reason was a time full of bad movies. Now, of course, there are plenty of great films that came out of the 80s. And I'm not criticizing you know, the decade as a whole, or any of the you know amazing filmmakers that came out of the '80s, such as you know Martin Scorsese, or uh, Paul Schrader, or the likes. There's plenty of great filmmakers that were around and made great films in the '80s. I just think, as a whole, it's a pretty depressing era. And maybe it's just because I haven't watched a lot of movies from the '80s. It's the one decade that I haven't seen a lot of. I just, I don't really have a lot of interest in the '80s. So since I hadn't watched a lot of movies lately, and since I miss my favorite era, which is the 40s and 50s, specifically black and white films, film noir is something that I'm absolutely obsessed with. And Detour is kind of the epitome of film noir. One of the most interesting things about Detour is it's actually only an hour and 10 minutes long. It's a super short film, and they don't really make movies like that anymore. There's just not really a genre for it. Now, of course, there's kind of series and each episode you can say is like a mini movie but it's just not really the same thing there's never really a full story that's told in kind of that in time frame from like 45 minutes to an hour and 15 minutes which is kind of tragic because there's a lot of great stories to be told there and the fact that they don't tell that kind of stories i think it really misses out on a certain type of cinema a certain type of experience especially when i don't want to go to the theater and watch a Lord of the Rings movie for the next three and a half hours. So may maybe that's part of it too, is it's just the nostalgia of having those short films. I mean, you watch a Charlie Chaplin film or Buster Keaton film, they're regularly like an hour, an hour and 10 minutes. And after the film, it doesn't feel like you've wasted your whole day away. And there's nothing wrong with having a longer movie. Although I think any movie over two hours needs to have a very good justification. And perhaps that's part of the reason that I hate people like James Cameron who regularly make three-hour-long films because they don't deserve three-hour films. Terminator 2 did not deserve a three-hour film. And with a film like this, it recognizes that sometimes a short film can be just as powerful as a long film. And even though this film is only an hour and ten minutes, it's pretty impactful. And as I was watching the movie, I had to keep checking on my IMDb. I'm like, have I seen this movie before? Why is this movie so familiar? And I realized that this movie was actually parodied by one of my favorite television shows as a kid, Spongebob. There's an, it's probably season one or two, I don't know what the episode's called, but Spongebob starts the film sitting in a diner and he's drinking a cup of coffee and he's talking to 
these people, this like waitress who works at the diner and someone sitting at the diner. And he tells the story of how he accidentally kills the health inspector and takes, um, and takes him to a graveyard and just kind of how the story unfolds and he fumbles into a cop and it's just this whole thing. And obviously it has a very different ending and no one actually ends up dead, unlike Detour where it, it, it's pretty fatal, but it's, it's one of the reasons that I admire a silly show like Spongebob and t kids television that is willing to homage the kind of great films of history. And this film has been so impactful on not only film noir, but just films in general. I mean, the idea of a diner, I was talking about Andrew with this just the other day. I don't know what our film's gonna be about yet. I mean, we have some basic ideas, but the one of the things that we're 100% sure of is that a third of the film's gonna be in a diner. Cause diners, there's just something so cinematic about it. And I think this is one of the earliest instances that I can think of. I can't think of any films from the 30s or 20s that really kind of play with diners in the way that this film does. And the film starts, it bookends itself. It starts off with film noir, <laughs> film noir. It starts off at the diner and it ends at the diner and everything in between is kind of the story that took place before it, which kind of you know, plays into the classic film noir role of you know a, a detective or kind of a guy down on his luck talking to an audience. And I know I, I talk about my criticism of voiceovers and I do think voiceovers are very dangerous. They can be very dangerous. I think the best way to see a voiceover is kind of a double-edged sword on which, why would you have a single-edged sword? That, that's a conversation for another time. But on one side, a voiceover can and often is just in like in Terminator 2 or Terminator. It's a crutch. So you don't actually have to make that part of the film. So if things are, are complicated or you don't want to explain something, you just use a voiceover. This was famously done with the original Blade Runner, and if you've watched that version, it's the worst version. But the other side of the sword is, if you use it only to create a tone, create a certain theme, or not so much to explain, but almost as... And it's not that it needs to be ironic, such as, you know, the case with adaptation. We think of that famous scene where Nick Cage is sitting, listening to a, a film lecturer talk about how... <laughs> A voiceover is never necessary, and at that moment he has a voiceover in his head. Yes, those kind of ironic voiceovers work, but I'm thinking of other Charlie Coffee films, like I'm thinking of Ending Things, where he unironically uses the voiceover, and I think that the voiceover can be a powerful tool, it's just, it's a very dangerous tool, and it's not very often used well. But I think Detour uses it well, and I think part of the reason it uses it well is it's not explaining any part of the story. It's only using the voiceover to create a certain tone, to create a certain mood. This film was, for context, was, was made in 1942, well, 1941, at the kind of end of the Great Depression, but still a little before we got in, America got into World War II, and there was this very real sense of fatalism, both in cinema and in the world at large. It was this idea that not only that you would be down on your luck, but that your luck would only get worse and worse and worse. And that's the tragedy of this film and this whole kind of era of, of fatalistic films where no matter what you do, you are forced into this sort of kind of terrible existence. At the beginning of the film, he 
is kind of with the love of his life, I suppose. And it's super foggy for some reason, which is one of the things that I love about movies from the 40s and perhaps why I integrate in so many of my films is they're just, they're so foggy. I don't, I don't know why they're so foggy, but the films, there's just fog everywhere and there's something beautiful about that. I suppose it's probably has something to do with the fact that they're probably on a set and you don't want to see that they're on a set. So they're like, well, if we just put a bunch of fog, they won't notice. But it's so beautiful, especially when it's in black and white. You can just see the contrast of their faces and their clothes and the fog. And it's beautiful. And the, the protagonist, who's a piano player, and his love interest, lover, I'm not really sure how to describe her exactly. The person he's in love with, I guess. They're walking around. She's like, I need to go LA. I need to make it big. I'm going to go, right? I'm going to be a movie star. And he's like, no, you can't do it. You'll never be able to do it. And she's like, I'm going to do it anyways. And then she goes off to LA. And he's like, ah, oh, how am I going to get to LA? And I don't, I guess my question is, how did she get to LA? Because a lot of the movie is him trying to get to LA. And the way he does it is he hitchhikes. And this is back in the era where hitchhiking was just like a thing people did. People don't really do it anymore, although I guess it happens every now and then. But it, it was a strange era where you could just walk down the street and just be like, hey, can you uh, pick me up? Can you pick me up, a stranger, and take me to somewhere? And they'd just be like, yeah, okay. And so he's he's hitchhiking, he's doing his thing, and he actually gets pretty far. He's all the way in Arizona. So, I mean, he starts in New York City, gets to Arizona, no hitches, doing really well. He gets picked up by this one guy, and it is very clear at that moment that this guy is, there's something off about him. There's scratches all over his hands. He just has kind of an evil aura around him. They don't really use any sort, there's not a lot of music in the film, and so they don't really use that as a crutch. And part of the reason is because of what are called poverty films. Not only is a film during May the Great Depression, it was made with an extremely low budget. This film was only made <laughs> with basically two sets. There's the set of them driving, which it's amazing how much of the film takes place in the car. The film that reminds me most of, again, I'll go back to Charlie Coffin film, I'm thinking of ending things. In Detour, I would say probably 40 minutes of the film takes place in a car. Now, obviously they use uh, rear imaging or rear imaging reverse projection, rear projection, I should say. And sure, it's not like the greatest effect in the world. Honestly, I think rear reject projection looks just as good as green screen most of the time. So I'm not really complaining about it. And it's not really about that anyways. And they do have a lot of interesting moments in, in ways that they can shoot and move the camera because they're in on a set, which seems to be one of the big problems I would say often when studios use either rear projection or, you know, like today, they will often use green screen is even though they can move the camera wherever they want, they'll often just put the camera right in front of the two or they'll just like a side angle. And, and this film experiments a little bit. Now, not it doesn't experiment the way, say, an Eisenstein would experiment or an Orson Welles would experiment, but there are quite a few different angles and a lot of uh, different ways to kind of see things. And so he he's picked up and you know, they're talking about, and they're like, ah, dames, women. And there is something quite sexist about that character. I think for a film in the 40s, they're really, I, I think you could look at it through a feminist lens. I think there is a very honest take to look at this film from the view of a feminist. And there's a lot to be said about that. But you, this character clearly hates women and is a real... Uh, rigmarole role of a guy, if you will. And so he's complaining, he's got all these scratching. He's like, oh yeah, this woman gave me this one and this woman gave me that one. 
and blah, 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 blah. And they're driving and they go to another diner because this movie is like 30% diners. So they go to a diner, they go eat, they're eating, they're having a good time. They get back on the road and he's like, hey, can you drive for me? And he's like, yeah, I'll drive. So he's driving, he's doing his thing, the protagonist that is, and it starts to rain. Now they're driving a convertible. I don't know why it's raining in the desert, but that's neither here nor there. Maybe they're out of the desert by now. No, they're, they're still in Arizona, but it's raining. So let, let's just buy that it's raining. So it rains, they pull over. He goes to put the top up and he tries to wake up his partner or the person who picked him up. The guy won't wake up. He wakes him up again, wakes him up again, won't wake up. So he's like, that's weird. So he walks around the car, he opens the door, the guy falls out, hits his head and is dead. Now it's not clear if he died from the fall or if he was already dead before that. You don't really learn how he died until well late until into the film, which makes sense because the narrator at the time doesn't know when the person is dead. And so he's like, oh no, there is this dead guy in this car. What do I do? Option one, just drive away. Now, I guess that's not really the worst option in the world, but he immediately recognized. And I think this is the point of the voiceover and why this voiceover matters so much in this film. There is a lot of the film where it is just him, where he is in his mind a lot. This would probably almost work better as a novel than it does a film, although I think it is a very successful film. But he's alone, and so you kind of have to know what he's thinking. He's like, well, I can't do that. I can't call the police, because they're gonna be like, hey, why is there this dead guy in this car? Which, yeah, I guess that's true. I mean, it's a little paranoid, but you can buy into that paranoia. You just, you know, meet someone and then suddenly they're dead. Yeah, you'd be a little paranoid. So he drags them to, you know, out a, a bit of ways and buries them. And then he like goes through all this logic of why he needs to steal his clothes and steal his money. And it's kind of ridiculous, but you buy into that paranoia. You genuinely believe that, yeah, I guess that is something you would believe at time. Cause he's like, I need to wear his clothes because this is what he would look like. I need his money because he would have a lot of money and I need this, and I need that. And even though he's clearly stealing and robbing this man who is now dead, I'm not saying he killed him, he clearly didn't, but it, it feels justified in the moment. And, and I think without the voiceover, it wouldn't feel justified. And so I think that's one of those moments where like, yeah, the voiceover is kind of necessary. And so he gets back on the road and as, as he's about to get back into his car, there's a police officer there and you're like, oh shit, shit's about to get real, right? This is your real first uh, do ex machina. But it doesn't feel like a do ex machina because sure, he's on the side of the road. He's not really parked all the way over. It's raining, it's dark. You could buy that police officer would be out there. It's not like the biggest thing in the world. And there's this moment of like, oh no, is he caught? Is he gonna ask a bunch of questions? doesn't really ask a lot of questions. He's like, hey, you need to get back on the road. And you, you're just can, you can feel the relief. It's amazing how incredible the tension is. Even though very, like, even though there is no real action going on, even though it's most, like up to this point, it's mostly just people walking around talking. And this is what amazes me about these, what are called poverty films, is very little actually happens in these films. It's mostly just people sitting around talking. And yet they have this incredible way of making tension and you're pulled in and you're dragged in and at that moment perhaps it's because of the voiceover you connect incredibly with the character and you're like oh no is he going to be arrested is this going to be the end for him and it's not and you're like whew so he goes driving he goes to get gas literally the the first time he goes to get gas he sees a woman and i'll admit she's a beautiful woman a dame if you will i'm really not entirely sure what dame means but it's a word they use a lot and it's a cool word if it's Insulting, I guess maybe you don't use it, but it's fun to say, 
dame. See, it's fun. So he sees this dame and he's like, hey, dame, do you want to get in my car? Because she's hitchhiking. He's not like a murderer. And she's like, sure. And so she waddles her way over and gets into the car and they're driving along and there's something off about her. You can just kind of see in her face. She's clearly someone who is a very, uh, of an angry disposition. Someone who, who really had to kind of fight tooth and nail for their place in the world. And, and you have to give, you know, really a nod to, to the, the female actor at this point, because even with, before she says a single thing, you know so much about her just by her demeanor, the way she sits, the way she looks at him, just like the way uh, she reacts to the world is just full of frustration and anger as if there has been something stolen from her. And so they're sitting in the car, again, another car conversation and come to find out she knows the guy, the owner of the car, the dead guy. And she's like, you're not that guy. And he's like, what? Cause he's stolen that guy's driver's license and all that. Cause he's like, well, if I get pulled over, I need to pretend to be him. And there's some very serious Dorian Gray vibes going here. It, it feels in a lot of ways that is, the film is inspired by Dorian Gray and that there is a Dorian Gray uh, essence to it, if you will. Just that it's, you know, the, even though he doesn't kill him, he assumes his identity and throughout the film, he kind of morphs into him. And the, and I was thinking this the whole time, this is very Dorian Gray-esque and there's clearly some inspiration from Dorian Gray and where does he draw the line between himself and this character that he's playing. And a lot of the times he just can't. And so at this moment, since he's only been playing this character for minutes, maybe a couple of hours, he's like, ah oh, man, you caught me. Because she's like, no, you're definitely not that person. That person picked up me earlier. She was hitchhiking with him. I don't know like how she she ended up getting out of the car. Well, actually that explained, and there's another moment where um, the scratches on the dead guy's hands came from that woman. And that's just an amazing kind of nod to what's gonna happen in the future. In such, again, only an hour and 10 minute film to have that much information packed into the first, really only 20 minutes and have that many things already happen is kind of amazing. So you buy into that the same way you buy into everything else and the voiceover helps you buy into it. It reminds me of, this is gonna be a strange comparison, but it, it reminds me of, of the narrator in Lolita. He has a certain charm to him that makes you in many ways kind of almost want to be on his side, even though he's this awful human being and you can see the terrible things he's doing, He's very good at trying to convince you of this. And in the same way, even though this narrator isn't a bad person at this moment, although he's starting to commit bad, like evil crimes, he's so charming, so kind, and you feel for him. So you're like, I want to be on your side. I feel for you. And so she's talking to him and she's like, look, we, uh, we need, we need to, we need to move on. We need to, we need to, what we need to do is we need to sell the car. And he's like, no, no, no. I want to get rid of this car as soon as possible. Get rid of the car and just move off. And like, she's like, no, no, no. There's a lot of money in this car. This is an expensive car. The car goes for something like $2,000, which I think in like today dollars is something like 40 or $50,000, which is just like an insane amount of money. So I understand why she would want to sell the car. And she also asked for all of the money that he stole, which he just willingly gives to her. And I get that he's kind of like in a tight space. Cause she's like, I'm going to call the cops. But he, I mean, he just bends over the barrel for her. He's just immediately giving in. And I think that shows also there's kind of certain power dynamic and how that shifts because through most of the film, He's a pushover and she just asks and gets whatever she wants. And clearly she's comes from a place where she wasn't given a lot in the world and she has to work for everything in life. So she's more than willing to take it from him. 
And then they get to the California state line. And this isn't a thing anymore, but apparently at the time, whenever you cross state lines, or maybe it was just California, they inspect your car. I don't know if that's a real thing or if it was a real thing or not, but it is something that they did in the movie and it did feel tense in the same way that the earlier scene with the officer did. Again, it's just kind of repeating the same thing. Nothing really happens and they just drive on and it's no big deal, but it's nice that there's this extra sense of tension. So he wants to get rid of the car as soon as he's in California. He's like, get rid of the car and just leave and just forget about it. Don't worry about it more. She's like, no, 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 we need to sell it. Not only do we need to sell it, we need to sell it in LA. We need to trade ownership. We need to trade uh, who has license or what have you. Now I'm not, to be honest, I'm not sure why it's done in LA since it can be done anywhere. And yes, he is going to LA to meet his wife, but he could sell the car at any point before that. I guess that that's one of kind of the flaws of the film. There's no really reason that they need to sell in LA other than she wants it to be sold in LA. So perhaps there's a certain, um, much like Edgar Allan Poe, this need to be caught, it feels like in a certain sense. And this is a very Poe story. I don't know why I keep referencing <laughs> literature when when I'm a filmmaker, but, but there's a lot of Poe aspects in the, in the sense that the whole film he is struggling with the fact he feels guilty for the fact that that person died even though it's not his fault he didn't kill him he still somehow feels responsible for that death <clears throat> and so they get to LA they go to sell the car and come to find out well while he does have the license he has the registration he doesn't have the insurance which isn't great and so the the protagonist is kind of in a bit of a uh, not really sure what to do. Luckily, the dame, if you will, the woman kind of gets him out of that sticky situation. She's like, we can't sell the car. And he's like, what do you mean we can't sell the car? This is $2,000. This is what you want. Take the $2,000 plus $300 you already have, which in today's money, again, that's like $50,000. Take the $50,000 and run. She's like, no, 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 no. The dead guy's dad is about to die and you could be the one in the will because you're still technically this person. You still have all of his stuff. And the protagonist is like, what? No, I'm definitely not gonna do that. And she's like, but the money. And he's like, no, I just wanna get on with my life. And again, she just keeps pushing him and pushing him and he doesn't really know how to fight back if there's any flaw with this film is, and perhaps this is part of the fatalistic nature of it, is no matter how much he fight back, he loses and he loses very quickly. And so they're staying in a hotel for kind of days and weeks. It's not really clear how much time goes by, but they're clearly waiting for this guy to die so they can show up. And he doesn't want to do it, but she's like, we have to do this. We have to show up to the you know reading of the will so we can get all of the money, even though you're not technically him. And he doesn't want to do it, but he's like, well, if she calls the cops, I'm definitely going to jail. So he keeps playing along, keeps playing along, and there's this clearly, on her end, this sort of um, desire for him, this physical desire. I can't tell if if it's so much, it, it's definitely not love, but it's, I think she, she craves human interaction, and maybe like, and then some people would see the perspective, oh, she's just kind of like the seductress, but I don't think she is a seductress. I think she is someone who craves human emotion. She craves human touch and she doesn't get it in any time in this film she's constantly being pushed back and by the only other character that you really see the protagonist he keeps pushing back at her and i think what she wants is just <clears throat> to be loved and i think part of the reason she's so 
greedy for this money isn't really about the money. It's about being loved. It's about being wanted. Maybe not necessarily by him in particular, but certainly by someone or anyone. But then there's the catch at the end. He gets tired of it. He's been sitting there for weeks. And he's like, I, I don't want to do this scam anymore. I can't do it anymore. The love of my life is like two blocks away. I want to see her. I want to be with her. I want to give up all of this. I don't care about the money. And he never did. He immediately gave up his own money that he stole from her. Or from the dead guy. And she says, you know what? I'm going to call the police. And the protagonist goes, no, no, no. If you call the police, I'll rat on you. She's like, you would rat on me? Well, of course he would rat on you. You're the one calling the police. But she's like, you know what, I'm going to do it anyways. And there's a bit of a, a, a tussle between them, but she runs into the bedroom holding the phone, which again, this is at a time when there were still cords, and this is important to the rest of the film. So she runs into the bedroom, slams the door. He starts banging the door. He's like, open the door, open the door. You can hear her starting to call the, the police department, and he's freaking out. He's super scared. And so he tugs on the phone cord. Now, why he doesn't just break down the door at this point, I'm not really sure. Because if he just breaks down the door, get in, hang up, end of right, conversation, it's over. But instead, he decides to pull on the cord. And instead of pulling it from the end of, say, where it goes into the wall, he pulls it from the end of her, hoping to kind of pull the phone out of her hand. And he pulls, and he pulls, and he pulls, and you can hear her, like, talking on the phone, and then there's this silence, which is strange. And it's strange because after he stops pulling... There's still silence, and he hits the door, hits the door, he breaks it down, which makes me wonder, why didn't you do that first? Why did you wait to break down the door? Break down the door first, don't do what you did. And you realize that the silence is that she has been strangled to death. The phone cord had wrapped around her neck, and he had been pulling at it and killed her. Now, why she didn't scream? This is a little pro like you think you would hear her scream. Maybe it's because like you block your vocal cords, but in this moment, that you're not thinking about that. You're thinking, oh shit. Not only is there one guy dead guy, now there are two dead people. And this one he actually killed. And you can hear the narrator him going, oh no, like I might not kill this person, but I definitely killed this person. Which is a problem. And that's pretty much how the film ends. He runs away, he abandons the car, he abandons her. There could certainly be another 30 minutes where kind of things kind of wrap up. It's interesting, I think if this film was made today, that would actually be an hour into a two hour movie. I think they try to make, you know, they try to pull another hour out of that movie because people think, well, if I'm going to a movie, it needs to be at least this, um, right, this long, especially because they don't do double features anymore. And so if you were see if this film was made today and I've kind of considered like what if we remade this film? I think this would be a really fun film to remake. There's very few scenes. It's a really interesting film, but the problem is like copyright laws and and things of that nature, but it, it's a really intriguing piece piece and I do love it for some reason. And after he goes off, that's where we see him back at the diner. And you realize that they have found her body because he didn't do anything with the body. He just left her there, which, terrible idea. I mean, all these people have met him. And he even says that. And, you know, the hotel's under someone's name. Although, what, what he points out is, well, the hotel is under the dead man's name. So, 
a great line in the film is, you know, this dead man got me in and this dead man got me out. Which, okay, it, it's much better when he says it, and he says it in a much better way, but basically the idea is that, right, he's first in trouble because of this guy's death, but he ends up getting out of trouble because in all of these places where he met all these people in the hotel, it was under that dead guy's name, so he's no longer at fault, and he can go back to living his life. Except he doesn't feel like he can do that either. And so he... he finishes his story at the diner, which I wonder who he's telling the story to, because it's not like in SpongeBob where he's, where SpongeBob is talking to the waitress or the person sitting at the counter. This is all going on in the narrator's head, which is interesting because it brings in the viewer. And I think that's part of where the tension comes from. And it reminds me almost of say a Fleabag-like story in the sense that Fleabag is always bringing the viewer in. They're bringing him into the story. And so we connect it in a very different, strange way. And this film does that, which not a lot of film noirs do or voiceovers do. They bring the viewer into it. You know, it's almost as if we, in a certain sense, just like he was implicated in the murders, were also implicated in the murders in the same way that he was at first, right? He was first implicated in the murders by merely being by association. And now we're implicated in the murders by association. And it's sort of tragedy that to see that well wait a minute if we're implicated in these murders it's so quick for us ourselves as humans to go into the exact same place and he walks out of the diner and he's hitchhiking his way again and he gets picked up by the police by the highway patrol now it's not clear at this moment if he's picked up by the highway patrol because he's hitchhiking or because of some minor act or if he is being picked up because they think he is the murderer for these crimes, which, how would they know that? I'm not really sure. But the film just ends there. And I think it's interesting that they have this narration, right? That's explain, that isn't explaining everything that's going on, but it's creating a tone and helping you understand. And at that moment when he's captured, there is no narration. They don't really say what he's thinking as he gets into that car or what happens after that in the car. And the film ranges to the classic, the end. And that's the end of the film. And I love it. It's a super sad and depressing film and certainly of that fatalistic era and the fact that it was shot for such a tiny budget is really incredible. I mean, I think I can make that film for less than $10,000 today. And there is just so much to admire about the film. I know people love it because they're like, well, this was only shot in like two scenes and there's very little locations and blah, blah, blah. And it was only shot in 30 days, which is incredible for a studio shoot. But there's something amazing about it. And I, I think this film only works an hour and 10 minutes. I think if this film was made today, they'd try and stretch it out into a two hour, two and a half hour film. And it wouldn't work. It only works in this time frame. And I really enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed it a lot more than any of James Cameron's work, or honestly, it's probably the most enjoyable film I've seen in quite a while. So I'd give this five out of six thumbs up. I should probably pick like a real rating system. I'd say out of 10, 10 seems like a good number. I give it a eight out of 10. It's a good film. I really enjoyed it. I think my big problem with it is just that it's so short. And I know that's also kind of a benefit of it, but you just, you want more. 
And, it, and the other problem is that it is so fatalistic that it feels like this character never does anything for themselves, which you kind of wish they do. And it's not that you want a happy ending. I'm not saying that there has to be a happy ending or isn't a good film. I'm not saying that at all. I'm merely suggesting that he's never able to fight back. And I know that's part of the era, but you want to see that. You want to see him fighting back. You want to see him trying to face up to his conflict, and he never does. And that's just a little depressing.